0: Well, you know what's coming. The cheesiest jokes that you've likely ever heard, because for some reason I just can't help myself. It's kind of a a pattern for me. Are you ready for them? Maybe we should pray again before I share them that you don't run out, because that could happen too. Um, Where was Solomon's temple located? On the side of his head? right? You don't have to be a theology major to know that one. Come on. When someone needed a boat made, what did the people in town say? We know a guy. Know a guy? They get worse. Wait for it. Which Bible character was the best musician? Scott, you know this one. You're a musician. Samson, he brought the house down. What did Daniel tell his real estate agent? Maybe you, Justin and Jen, you want to tell your agent the same thing. I'd prefer a house with no den. Lion's den? Den? <laughs> Finally, so that you don't leave. How do pastors like their orange juice? With pulpit? <laughs> yeah, you're right. I can't even take any more of it myself. So, uh, Next month is October, and it's Pastor Appreciation Month. But has been, as has been said before, every day should be Pastor Appreciation Day for us, right? And yeah, I'm Pastor Bob's son, but it's an unbiased fact that we have a great man and shepherd as our pastor. Perfect? No, of course not. But a wonderful man. He's been serving faithfully here in this place since 1979. And he's been our pastor for nearly a quarter of a century. So in preparation for Pastor Appreciation Month. Do I have your permission to start early? Yes, good. Paul wrote, amongst other books, something called the Pastoral Epistles. The Pastoral Epistles in the New Testament are comprised of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and these letters are some of the best material that pastors can study as they both both prepare for the ministry and continue in the ministry. Now, pastors generally talk about us their congregation, right? They're giving us encouragement on how to live and how to grow our faith, and um, they may not so readily want to talk about their calling, their office, and their service, but I think it's important for us to focus on those biblical details about a pastor today for two reasons. First, pastor isn't here, so he's not going to be sitting there squirming all uncomfortable, because if I did that when he was here, believe it or not, he doesn't like to be to be talked about or be the spotlight if you can believe that but I'm telling you as a son that's true but the second reason and more seriously um, we need to talk about pastors today so we can better relate to what pastors around the world face what our pastor faces in particular so that we equip ourselves to support him even better than we do today in prayer in encouragement and in partnership in ministry and so the pastoral epistle we're gonna be surveying today is 2nd Timothy You want to open your Bible to 2 Timothy. We're going to be basically progressing all the way through it. Uh, The sermon outline, so you can get a sense of where we're going, is behind us. I'm not going to read all of those yet, but this is an idea of where we're headed. And let's ask the Lord to, to bless our time together. Father, thank you for pastors. Thank you for each calling that you have on the people's lives that are here. But today we're thinking about the calling of the pastorate. Um, It's a high calling, Lord. It's a special calling. Um, Pastors are so significant in our world, despite our culture maybe seeing them as less significant than they truly are. And so, Father, I pray that from your word today we would learn some of the unique challenges that they face, some of the challenges that they face that are common to the entire congregation, um, and that today, Lord, you might uh, equip us to partner more closely with our pastor and ministry. And we love you and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's some background on this letter, 2 Timothy, that we're gonna study today. 2 Timothy is Paul's final writing. It is his last will and testament. And it is penned somewhere around 68 AD. He is writing from prison to Timothy, Paul is. Uh, And Timothy is his spiritual son with the goal of giving advice to Timothy, comfort, exhortations, encouragements, and warnings. Because at this point, Timothy is a young pastor. Paul's friends have abandoned him. He is in close confinement. And tradition tells us that Paul is soon going to be beheaded by Nero. We first met Timothy as a young man in Acts 16. His mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. Timothy came to Christ under Paul's ministry and spent considerable time with Paul as a result. Timothy accompanied uh, Paul on his tour through Macedonia, but remained in Berea with Silas when Paul continued on to Athens. We see Timothy's name is found in the address to both of the epistles, First and Second Thessalonians, uh, as Paul sent Timothy back there to Thessalonica to visit them. Timothy ministered to Paul during his lengthy stay at Ephesus, and from there Paul sent him into Macedonia and to Corinth. On Paul's return to Asia through Macedonia, Timothy waited for Paul at Troas. He was with Paul while Paul was in prison at Rome, and Timothy himself was imprisoned and set free about the same time, according to Hebrews 13.23. As we read Paul's letter to 2 Timothy, Timothy is at Ephesus as a pastor, and it appears false teachers, perhaps Gnostic Jews, who sought to be teachers of the law had invaded Ephesus and were spreading their poisonous doctrine which had to be stopped the problems Timothy faced will also be faced by pastors and congregations today so it is instructive to us this morning as we get into our sermon the first thing we're going to look at is an idea of a legacy of faith and I'm going to uh, read first uh, excuse me second Timothy chapter 1 verse 5 it says when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. That verse talks about Paul seeing in Timothy's family a generational faith. Paul didn't only lead Timothy to Christ, but Paul must have known his family. And Paul calls out in appreciation what he saw in, in Paul's grandmother Lois. He saw faith, an abiding faith, and in Paul's mom Eunice, excuse me, Timothy's mom Eunice. And he says that he sees it in Timothy as well. If we look at Hebrews chapter 11, which is called the faith chapter, um, we see that Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 defines what faith is for us. Now the faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. A lot of people use that as the definition for faith. In uh, Hebrews eleven two, it says, "For by it the elders obtained a good report. Faith is pleasing to God, and when we have a faith in our life that is pleasing to the Lord, it gives us a, a good report in His sight." And uh, verse three of, he, of Hebrews eleven says, "Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen, not made of things which do appear. Faith gives us the ability to understand." Things like creation and other doctrinal truths in the scripture. But there's also another word in 2 Timothy 1.5 that we see. In addition to this generational faith that Paul sees in Timothy's family, he uses the word, it's an unfeigned faith. And unfeigned means not hypocritical. It's genuine. And so not only are we called to have faith in our lives but a particular kind of faith and paul's saying timothy i appreciate this genuine faith in your life and and pastors should have this unfeigned faith Um, things aren't always going to go well for pastors you know that right we know experientially that things don't always go well for us but did you know that things don't always go well for pastors too Um, it's something we should remember And pastors should expect an unfeigned faith from their flock because things aren't always rosy in our lives, right? Um, We need the freedom to be able to come here and express our faith right where we're at. If I ask you how you're doing, you don't always have to say, I'm great! You know, I don't want to offend anybody, but the Joel Olstein perpetual smile, everything is wonderful. Um, That's not life. And if that's how we're experiencing and are expressing our faith, it should concern us. Because life has peaks and valleys. And life has ups and downs. And when we're genuine and honest with each other, we should have the freedom to sit in the pew and be who we are at that point in time. Um, And Paul is is grateful for Timothy's faith. We don't have to always be down. That's just kind of negative. But we don't always have to be up either. And so um, it's actually this type of unfeigned faith in Timothy that allows Paul to see that not everything is well in his spiritual son's life right now. He sees that Timothy is struggling in Ephesus. And what does Paul do? He responds by ministering to him. He writes this letter. You see, Paul saw fear in Timothy. And the first thing that Paul starts to do when he sees this fear in Timothy, Timothy is going through a time in his faith where he is also experiencing a great deal of fear. And Paul talks about the consequences of the fear. Now, for sake of time, I'm not going to read every scripture that you see up here today. But if you look in verse 4, the first thing that Paul calls out that he sees in Timothy is tears. Have you ever gone through a struggle that caused you to cry? weep, that things were so difficult that you had to have this release of crying, this pastor, Timothy, was shedding tears about the things that he was going through. In verse 6, we see that Paul had to put him in remembrance of some things because this fear had caused Timothy to be forgetful of the things that he knew about Christ, Did you know that pastors are vulnerable to forget things that the Lord teaches all of us? They're just like us. They can forget. Timothy was complacent because of this fear. Timothy had put himself on the sidelines because his faith wasn't able to be activated because of his fear. Have you ever been paralyzed by your fear? Where you thought about it so much and you had these anxious feelings and you just couldn't act. You couldn't do this thing that maybe you had been doing, serving the Lord, and there's like this pause button pressed in your life, and you become complacent. Verse 7 talks about how Paul had relinquished control to fear. You know, fear can control our lives, it can make us the opposite of having the power of God in our life, it can make us powerless. It can convert the love that we have for others and the Lord into a hatred. And the word that I'm using to describe another thing we see in verse 7 is lunatic. It can be the opposite of a sound mind. Now, the word lunatic means affected with a severely disordered state of mind. Wildly foolish. When we act out of fear, have you ever seen this? Somebody make a decision that seems wildly foolish and you say, what is going on for that person? I'm sure I've been wildly foolish in my life at times because of fear. Did you know pastors are vulnerable to the same thing? And verse 8 talks about other consequences that Timothy faced. He actually became ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. Maybe because of what the Gnostics were, were preaching and what the culture was there. There were probably a lot of people that didn't like the testimony of Jesus. And that fear about what people might think of him caused him to actually become ashamed, not just of Jesus, but of his spiritual father, Paul. He became ashamed of Paul, the prisoner of Christ. And he also became selfish in how he was working for the Lord. Not only was he inactive and paralyzed about certain things, but he was off trying to use his gifts in his own way. Not being led by the Lord, He became selfish. All those things. I don't know I don't know why the Lord asked me to talk about this when just last week, Pastor talked about faith and fear. Um, but but it's, I think seeing it in Timothy's life is a slightly different lens, and it's helpful because we not only go through these things, but pastors do as well. But Paul didn't want to leave Timothy in that place. In Second Timothy one and verses thirteen and fourteen, Paul shares with Timothy the remedy for fear. The remedy for fear. The first thing that Paul says is hold fast to your Bible. Hold fast to your Bible. Hold fast means remain tightly secured. Continue to believe in or adhere to an idea or principle. Are you clutching God's word? You know, first of all, are we holding it? Is it even in our hands? And if we're holding it, are we holding it loosely, ready to drop it at any gentle breeze that blows by? Or is it truly sheathed like a sword close to our body? Are we holding fast to it? Do we know how dear this word of God is? And so Paul says to Timothy, you're afraid, but you need to hold fast to the writings. And of course, during this time, a lot of the writings were completed in the Old Testament and being spoken and still being completed in the New Testament. They didn't have the Bible that we have, right? You know that. It wasn't all finished being written yet. They were at a disadvantage. But the scriptures that they did have in print, Paul says, hold on to. And of course, the Holy Ghost plays a part in overcoming fear. Because the Holy Ghost reminds you and I that we have nothing to be afraid of. The Holy Ghost wants to replace the fear with truth and with love. And I know that there's all kinds of other things that we could talk about around how to overcome fear. Some people struggle with anxiety and they take medication. I'm not a guy that's against medication and doctors. I think God's given that those things to us as helps. But you know, as a Christian, a part of how we deal with fear has to be around our faith. It has to be around God's Word. It has to be, in part, giving ourselves over to the Holy Spirit in a different way, asking the Holy Spirit to come in and move in us. And pastors face this same challenge in their lives. They're just human beings like us. They put their pants on one leg at a time, like we do. And so Paul is convinced of this remedy that's so clear, and sometimes we say it's simple, it Have we? We had uh, a lesson here at Youth group on Friday that Robin taught about the Bible, and uh, it's hard to read my Bible as much as I want to and hold fast to it in that way. I don't know if you've experienced the same thing. Moving on to our next calling for pastors and pastoral duties. Uh, Paul admon- or he's, a, he's appreciative of this generational and unfeigned faith in the life and family of Timothy. He sees fear in Timothy's life and talks about the consequences. He shares the remedy for fear with Timothy. And then he's making an assumption that Timothy's going to move away from this fear. He's going to activate again into his pastoral duties. And then he starts to list out what's required of Timothy, what's required of pastors. And the first is found in 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 2. I'm going to read those. Thou, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus... And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And the idea here is that pastors have been called to be biblical servant leaders. And when they stand here, even though there's a slightly elevated pulpit, the mindset is they are putting themselves as the lowest person in the room. Because that's what a servant does. They want to be eye level with the feet of the people here and then they want to serve in a way that equips you and I, equips you and I to live out our faith. That's why you don't hear pastor talking about what he's called to do as a pastor. You hear him focused on you and I, the challenges that we face, the struggles that we have, because he's trying to equip you and I to activate our faith and to live into it. And he's also trying to replicate to have other people come in and minister that may not already. You know, many fathers name their sons after them. They make them a junior. They raise their children to be like them. But Paul encourages his spiritual son Timothy to be like Jesus. The only time Paul tells anyone in Scripture to emulate him is when his actions are reflecting God. And here, Paul says, Timothy's first duty is to look to Jesus and be like him to equip others and then to replicate. Did you know that every ministry and function at Amwell needs to be replicated? Why? Because if we don't replicate what people are doing here, Amwell will cease to exist after the current generation is gone. We're just one generation away from not being a body here, and nothing happening here and this thing like we like to say that we're a lighthouse sharing the gospel and serving the community, that's gone if what you're doing doesn't get replicated. So it's pastor's job to help replicate all the various ministries, and it's our job to come alongside him and be willing to have people that we're mentoring. The thing that you're doing, you need to be mentoring somebody. You need to be giving up part of what you do so that they can do it, become proficient at it, and help pastor in his job to replicate the ministry that's going on here. The second thing we see that Paul tells Timothy in chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, is that he's to endure as a good soldier. People don't like to think of the Christian faith through a military lens, but it's all through the New Testament. And we see how faith is expressed militarily in the Old Testament as well. We're in a fight. Now, the only person that's disadvantaged that doesn't, if they don't realize that they're in a fight is the person who doesn't realize they're in a fight because the, the opposition knows they're in a fight and they're looking at what's going on through a military lens. And if we deny the fact that we have an enemy, the devil, and he's trying to hurt us and we're in a battle that we need to fight back against, then it's going to be very easy for him to sneak up and surprise us. God's soldiers, if we're not thinking about ourselves as God's soldiers. Don't trust the warrior that doesn't lead his men into battle. And then there's some talk in verse 6, the husbandman, about a farmer. The husbandman that laboreth must first be partaker of the fruits. Don't trust the farmer that won't eat his own crop. If he won't, his labor is evil and his harvest is corrupt. And thank God that we have a pastor that's enduring as a good soldier. He talks to us about fighting this fight. We need to put on the whole armor of God, and we need to fight. Paul talks about suffering next in 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. And really, to sum it up, he says, suffering is mandatory. Suffering is mandatory. When we are living for Jesus, it's not if we'll suffer. It's when. David Livingstone was born in 1813 and died in 1873. He was a Scottish missionary, doctor, abolitionist, and explorer. He sought to bring Christianity, commerce, and civilization to Africa, and he undertook three extensive expeditions throughout much of the continent. He faced immense suffering throughout his ministry. Of his suffering in general, it is said, he faced endless pain, illness, personal loss, tragedy, ridicule, and danger. I compiled a partial list of his specific suffering, which included things like pneumonia, dysentery, ulcers, sorry to be gross, hemorrhoids. He was lost and missing in Africa for four years. And also, in 1844, a woman in the village of Mabatsa was killed by a pack of lions, and Livingstone takes his rifle, goes out, and shoots and kills one of the lions, but not before it mauls him. Livingstone said about his suffering, it is true that missionaries have difficulties to encounter, but what great enterprise was ever accomplished without difficulty? Sounds like a real, a real Brit, a Scot. Ah, a little bit of suffering never hurt anybody. Suck it up. It's kind of fascinating, though, right? What's our response to suffering? Is it that, okay, I expect that. it's If we're going to work for the Lord, it's going to come. Paul's saying... Timothy, you need to understand, you're suffering? You should expect it. There's going to be more. It's not over yet. In May 1873 at Chindambo in what is now northern Zambia, Livingstone's African servants found him dead, kneeling by his bedside af- as if in prayer. In order to embalm Livingstone's body, they removed his heart and viscera and buried them in African soil. In a difficult journey of nine months, they carried his body to the coast. It was taken to England, and in, in a great Victorian funeral, he was buried in Westminster Abbey on April 18, 1874. Livingstone suffered. It might have been extreme suffering, but he suffered. We need to expect to suffer, too. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, recall, there were many who followed him, and they followed him because of his miracles, Once Jesus began to preach and teach, including informing them of the suffering Christian life, people left him in droves. He became very unpopular when he started to tell people what the Christian life involved. We tend to pray a little too much for blessings and safety. Let us live more boldly for Jesus like the living stones of the faith and pray for the grace to endure the suffering that will follow. And our pastors often show us how to suffer. If you don't think our pastor has had sufferings, ask him about it sometime. Maybe you don't know because you've never asked. But trust me, our pastor has faced suffering. He just isn't going to talk to you about it because he's more interested in hearing about the things that you're going through. Because that's a pastor's heart. That's what pastors do. They make this ministry about you and me and not about themselves Paul says that pastors are also called to handle heretics. You see the verses up here in chapter 2, verses 16 and 19. The word shun in verse 16 means to avoid deliberately and especially habitually. After trying to persuade a heretic and win them back, the heretic must be cut off. Because if they're not, the Bible says they'll become a canker in verse 17, to the pastor and to the congregation who don't shun them. Now here's the definition of a canker. An erosive or spreading sore. An area of necrosis in a plant. A caterpillar destructive to plants. A source of corruption or debasement. And the word necrosis, which can be in an area of a plant, is defined as localized death of living tissue. Which I think is so interesting because we're called the body of Christ. And you know there are some members of the body that are cankerous. They're cankerous, and that cankerous area will spread if it's not dealt with. These are hard things. You know, somebody likes confrontation and conflict, I'm concerned about them. Who likes to have conflict and confrontation? But pastors, part of their calling is to deal with stuff like that. The other thing, the next thing that Paul says to Timothy... As a pastor, he's called to demonstrate Christian separation, Christian separation. And I want to, I want to read chapter uh, 2, verses uh, 20 and 21. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use. And prepared for every good work. Just as large houses don't only have furnishings of gold and silver. But also of wood and earth. The same is true about the church universal. There are some faithful servants. Their works are of precious quality. Gold and silver. Which won't be burned up when judged by God. And others that are unfaithful. Whose works are like wood and earth. That will perish when judged by God. And within ourselves. It's not just like some are all wood, and some are all precious stones. All of us deal with this. There are works that we're about that the master is pleased with, and there are other works that we're about that he's not. How do we have the wisdom to know what we're working toward, what our work is indicated by, by the Lord? We're supposed to be a separate people, the Amish are a clear example of separation. Next weekend, my family and I get to go to Lancaster County. We have a reunion with our Amish friends, and you know we'll make some new memories, we'll catch up, but it's always such a picture to me of what the Christian life can be like, the separate Christian life. And we don't all have to become Amish. We don't even agree with all their traditions or all their tenets of their faith. But being a separate people is onto the Lord. It's something that we are commanded to do. And Paul knows this truth, and he asks that uh, it motivates us to serve Master Jesus with only precious, faithful works of gold and silver. The next part of our outline is uh, what we can expect in the last days. After Jesus left, people believed they were in the last days. And it's still true today. We're still talking about this idea of living in the last days. And what does it mean? And what Paul said to Timothy in verses 1 through 7 of 2 Timothy chapter 3 Um, He lists all these behaviors. Are you seeing those verses up there? I don't know what's behind me. Yeah. Um, Take a look at that list. It's kind of disheartening. Um, But as you read through the list of things that people will be exhibiting, the behaviors they'll be be exhibiting, one of the most disheartening ones for me um, is this a form of godliness in verse 5. A form of godliness. I mean, we should expect sinners to sin. They're sinners. They haven't been saved by Jesus. It's kind of their job. Do you ever get frustrated with somebody that's not a Christian when they sin? Why? Why? They don't have two natures. They don't have the Holy Spirit trying to push them to good. They're just about their flesh. Their soul is dead. They don't have the Holy Spirit work in their lives. Don't be frustrated when a sinner sins. By the way, it's a pastor's job not to be overly frustrated when a Christian sins. But we shouldn't be surprised when sinners sin, and this form of godliness, it's like an extra sneaky lie of the devil. It seems that people have and are and will wrap their sin within a slick marketing campaign so that it has the appearance of being true and from God himself. And of course it's not. That's why Paul calls it a form of godliness, it may be called a form of godliness, lower G, because it's serving the God of this world, Satan. And in a sense, it's uh, emulating him and not God, our Heavenly Father. So it might be an evil. It's, a, it's a, absolutely an evil, but um, form of godliness. To me, it's kind of like a Trojan horse. You've, you're familiar with uh, the story. It's first mentioned in Homer's The Odyssey, this idea of the Trojan horse. It describes how Greek soldiers were able to take the city of Troy after a fruitless 10-year siege by hiding in a giant horse supposedly left as an offering to the goddess Athena, that horse was brought into Troy. Uh, it was given free passage through all these defenses that their, Troy's enemy couldn't uh, penetrate for 10 years. And in the middle of the night, the enemy soldiers uh, dropped out of this Trojan horse. They opened the gate of Troy from within, which allowed their, their army to sweep through into and overtake the whole city of Troy. Sometimes we see an act of a form of godliness and we confuse it for actual godliness. And we let it into our mind and our heart. And we say, oh, that might not be so bad. And we compromise and we, uh, we, we have a, an argument with ourselves or maybe the Holy Spirit. And we say, that's just fine. And I think it's sad because Jesus said in Matthew sixteen eighteen, and I say unto you, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevent, prevail against it. That's a promise that God will get us through the attacks of things like a form of godliness. But it seems like sometimes we open those gates of hell and we let that Trojan horse ride in. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? The next thing that pastors need to deal with is opposition to the truth and godliness. The, the, the Bible says in the last times that there's going to be opposition to the truth and godliness. It's found in 2 Timothy 2. 3, verses 8 through 12, as you're reading those verses, Paul reminds Timothy that Janus and Jambres withstood Moses. Now, these two characters were likely the Pharaoh's magicians in Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 to 13, who, remember what they did, they countered Moses' staff and serpent with evil versions of their own. Um, Pastor Paul informs Pastor Timothy that he will receive similar opposition and to be prepared for it. Pastors have to be prepared for opposition. See, that word withstood that the Bible uses, it means to stand up against, to oppose with firm determination, especially to resist successfully, to stop or obstruct the course of. Paul says these types of people will expose themselves and their motives to all who are observing, and their folly will be self-evident. That's the kind of stuff that's probably gone on all throughout the life of the church but Paul says in the last days it's going to be escalated. And then finally there in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 13, that there's going to be this increased evil and deception. Wax means to increase in size, number, strength, prosperity, or intensity, to grow in volume or duration, to grow toward full development. It also means a fit of temper or rage. How do we, I mean, that's trending in our country today. There's more and more people that are speaking more and more loudly in opposition to the truth and in support, blatant support of evil, and they're angry. The Bible prophesied that would happen. Isn't that amazing? And he's preparing Christians to protect their flocks and to see how to deal deal with it during the last days. And the final area that we'll talk about is Christian living in the last days. Christian living in the last days is the last part of our outline. In uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, we are called, Timothy is called, Paul says we should read, believe, and trust in our Bible. We should read, believe, and trust in our Bible. I've heard it said that the Bible is the only book that responds to you in the manner in which you approach it, meaning if you're arrogant toward the Bible, want to change the Bible, think you know more than the Bible, it will resist you and not give you light. However, if you continue humbly to submit to it, to make it your final authority, that it will reveal itself to you. Now that's not a stretch for me because the Bible says about the Bible that it's alive. It's alive, so why wouldn't it respond to us in such a way? So let's ask the Holy Spirit to keep us humble towards God's word so the Holy Spirit can work in us and teach us in all knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, as Pastor Bob likes to say. He likes to distinguish what the differences between knowledge, understanding, and wisdom are. Christian living in the last days, especially for pastors, is found in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, Paul says, to preach the word. Preach the word. Now, I thought I knew what that meant. You know, encourage us, teach us about biblical truths, and encourage us along our way But there's several other words found in those verses that is also a pastor's responsibility. The word reproof is there. Preaching the word means to reprove, which means criticism for a fault. The word rebuke is there, which means to criticize sharply, to reprimand, to turn back or keep down, to put in check. The word exhort is there, which is to incite by argument or advice, to urge strongly, to give warnings or advice, to make urgent appeals. And to do all of these things, preaching the word, reproving, rebuking, exhorting, to do all of it with long-suffering, which is having or showing patience despite troubles, especially those caused by other people. And to do all those things not just with long-suffering, but with doctrine, which is a Christian belief supported by specific references in the Bible. Now, this preach the word section, along with this handling heretics before, Pastors have a hard job. Pastors have a hard job. It's not just all uh, Sundays with uh, a cherry on top. It's not just all happy conversations. Again, it involves some conflict. But what's happened in our world today is that things that are a little uncomfortable for some gets called hate speech. When the Bible says, when you exhort or rebuke somebody... It's not done out of anger. It's not done out of hate. You're willing to take that risk, risking that relationship. You're willing to correct somebody because you love them, because it brings them life, because it can restore them or the relationship that you guys have together. A pastor is called to lead in that regard. The next thing a pastor is called to is something I'm calling servant evangelism in verse 4. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 5. Do the work of an evangelist. I've been uh, introduced to this idea of servant evangelism. The idea is to pair up meeting the non-spiritual need of an unsaved person first through an act of kindness. Help somebody with their lawn. Help uh, bring food to a neighbor. Uh, Just a random thing that you do that gets somebody's attention. And then when they ask, we don't even really know each other. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you being kind to me like this? then you evangelize and you share the gospel. You don't just break into the gospel. You do something kind and then you share the gospel. Servant evangelism. And then, you know, um, this work of an evangelist, it's more than just evangelizing. That verse is specific. It says, do the work of an evangelist. Again, meaning it's more than just sharing the gospel. There's something else involved. And being kind and acts of kindness to people may be part of what that's talking about pastors need to finish well we see that in chapter 4 verses 6 to 8 christian living in the last days is we need pastors who start well stay consistent through their ministry and finish well thank god that we have a pastor that's demonstrating that kind of faithfulness i am grateful for that i've seen the devastation in other churches when a pastor is not faithful it's very hard it Some people lose their faith over it. They walk away from practicing their faith, and it's very, very sad. Pastors are called, as Paul says about himself in chapter 4, verse 16, to hold no grudges. At the end of Paul's ministry here, there were people that hurt him, and Paul says that pastors don't make things personal, even if the people they're having issues with do. Pastors have thick skin, can listen to other views, share their own, and then promote a culture of agreeing to disagree agreeably. You know, anything that I'm sharing today is what God has called me and convicted me about, and I have to stand before the Lord and answer for this someday. I've talked to you about this. I'm not telling you what to believe. That's between you and God. God's given us freedom. We have the choice to reject Jesus Christ as our savior as human beings and then when we accept Christ as our savior, the theology that we adhere to is between you and God. It's between you and God. So pastors don't need to make things personal. They can hold no grudges and I love what, uh, I love what Paul says in chapter four, verse 16. He, he, he talks about how people had, had hurt him but then he says, I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. What a beautiful prayer. What a conciliatory prayer. May we think and believe the same way. And the final thing that pastors are called and Christians are called to do in the last days as far as how we live is to anticipate God's ultimate deliverance. Paul is getting ready to die and he knows it. And he says in chapter 4, verses 17 to 18, "...notwithstanding the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen." Through the fear, the faith, the duties, and the difficulties of life, Going home to be with Jesus through death or the rapture should be the top of of mind for a pastor all along the way. All along the way. For them personally. Because only if it is top of mind for them personally can they encourage it to be top of mind for you and me. Their flock. Those that they're shepherding. This anticipation he tries to instill in others is cultivated in his own life. And this hope that Paul is sharing with Timothy. May we be able to execute all the rich teachings that we've read here. So in close, let's thank God that he uses us, fragile, sinful creatures, that God calls us. And remember the very challenging and rewarding call that pastors have. Today, I'm thankful for pastors around the world, for the pastors that have influenced my life and for my dad. For our pastor Bob, who has served the Lord and us at Amwell so faithfully for so long. So let's continue to support our pastor. Show him our appreciation in word and relationship with him. And let us continue to be unified in love and harmony, serving each other and Jesus in this place. Let's pray. Father, today we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for all the different things, the topics that you have chosen to give us light about to instruct us about so that we could have help along this way in our life with all the different things you know that we would experience. I pray, Father, that um, we've gotten maybe just one thing that we can take with us from this place that will help us in our walk. We thank you for what Paul said and and, and the vulnerability of Timothy and uh, how we read how he struggled because we can relate. Lord, I pray for our pastor today. I lift up Pastor Bob. He's working probably right now, preaching. We just pray that you're speaking through him. We pray that you give him physical strength and spiritual strength. We, give, we pray you give him endurance for this week as he's serving people, many of which he doesn't even know and have never, have never met. And um, Lord, we just thank you for giving us such a treasure. And I thank you for the treasure of the people here at Amwell, each one. Um, the members of this congregation, this flock, the family that we are, the friends that we are, the way that we can love each other and do life together. Protect that, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.